All right, guys, I got John Hinderleiter here with me. John, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm good, good. So, John, you are a U.S. Coast Guard veteran. You spent a lot of time in the Coast Guard. What did you do? How long were you in the Coast Guard and kind of what did you do? So I spent 20 years in the Coast Guard Reserves, uh, four of those years after 9-11 on active duty. The bulk of my time in the Coast Guard was at the United States Transportation Command in Scudder Force Base, Illinois. And so the Transportation Command moves everything in the, in the military. They're the logistics hub. So people, bullets, airplanes, whatever has to be moved, they're responsible for doing it. And all, all services, Army, Navy, Air Force, every, and even the Coast Guard, need something moved to some other place. And, you know, some services can do that move 100% on their own. Um, some services need the support of larger logistical uh, hubs to be able to do that move. And so my responsibilities there had varied throughout the 20 years that I was there. Um, and I've, I had multiple roles from protocol uh, type of event specialist uh, activities to uh, actually working in the logistics centers that they had to essentially providing an admin uh, r responsibility for other Coast Guard personnel that were assigned to that unit. So it was a, it was a good time, good service, and I uh, retired in 2018, and, and I do miss the people very much. Miss the mission, miss the people every day. Yeah, I think that's something that I miss um, about being in the Air Force was the mission, kind of the purpose. Um you didn't have to find those things. They were readily available for you. So um, a little bit different of a challenge being on the outside. I retired in 2017 after they medically retired me. And, you know, yeah, I miss it. I miss it at times. And there's times where I'm like, okay, I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not there right now. <laughs> well, I certainly got to the point where, I, you know, I would say to people, the music is playing a different tune. Yep. And, you know, just there were, there were, Things change all the time, and you have to get used to the idea, I think, in the military of being a little bit uncomfortable every single day, mm -hmm. you know, or, or uncomfortable in relationship to different types of changes. But, you know, eventually you get to a point where it's like, you know, I think I'm good. I think I've done my time. I think I've gone as far at, or gone as far in, in my service as I'm able to go. Um, and I'm you know, some people are okay with it. Some people are not okay with it. I was okay with it. I was, it was, I was actually for three years prior to it, I was counting down the months <laughs> to my retirement. Um, you know, and they're like, oh no, don't you want to stay in until, you know, to get 30 years? It's like, no, I'm good. 20 was fine. Give me my retirement. I'm good. <laughs> so what it was, what was it like being in a Coast Guard? Um, you know, cause Coast Guard falls under, uh, the, like Homeland, the Homeland brand. Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, not so much the you know, DOD. So what is that What is that kind of like? How is it kind of different? So when I started, and I started, you know, in uh, the, the late 90s, we were actually underneath the, uh, the Department of Transportation. Mm. Coast Guard is one of those services. They've been moved around, you know, to a few different departments and, and purposely kept from outside the Department of Defense. Um, and that allows us to have a, a maritime law enforcement role that that neither the that the Navy can't do, you know, in terms of law enforcement. OK. And so, you know, there's that component of there's the there's the historical and uh, and, and kind of 
regulation piece of why we don't exist underneath the other services or why we don't exist inside the Navy or inside the Department of Defense. Um, you know, I think the part, uh, you know, when we moved into the Department of Homeland Security in uh, after 2000, after 9-11, you know, and that department was formed, I think there was a lot of hopes and dreams. You know, here is this new department. Here is this new expanded global war on terrorism, um, you know, peace to all of it um, that was added to the larger scope for the Coast Guard. Um and so I think there was a lot of hope for increase, you know, increasing in funding, increasing of attention, increases of all these types of different types of things. Uh, and yeah, I'm probably sure to some extent that, you know, there there was some of that. But it also came with um, you, you also got added to a department that had other, you know, uh, entities underneath it that had their own political, yeah. uh, you know, issues. Here comes the bureaucracy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, here comes the bureaucracy, and and so you know where generally speaking, you know the 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 armed forces don't get as much political shrapnel thrown at them, you know, in, in in a lot of ways, and and I and I think that that was not the case, not so much for the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. but so much as other units that were, or other uh, entities underneath the Department of Homeland Security. They got a lot of th- uh, shrapnel thrown at them, and so there were times that the funding wouldn't be there, or funding might lapse, or you know other types of things that would come along that wouldn't impact other services. Um, you know, so there's that political piece to it. But you know, having served in a joint command for the majority of my entire time, you know, uh, the the one you wouldn't be able to really know that we were outside the department of defense, how well we worked with everybody mm-hmm. else. And if we needed something or we needed those things, you know, again, you wouldn't have known that really kind of working in that, that, that mission. So the other side of the, the other side of the coin was, is, is the funding is just way different because yeah. the Navy and, and, and the air force and, and all those services, you know, even the Marines get way more, way more funding than the Coast Guard ever saw in their, you know, in their entire time. And so there's just those, those differences of, of funding levels. And that has a, a downstream impact on just what we're able to do, you know, what, or what the service is able to do. Sure. So a large amount of time in joint assignments with the Coast Guard. Um, but now, and for quite a few years, you've been the director of marketing and communications at University College there in St. Louis, correct? Yes. So, uh, you know, as a reservist, you know, you have your reserve job. And, and when I was on active duty after 9-11, one of the things that I decided to do at that point was, um, you know, I had the education benefits. I used them. Um, I got I got my degree, um, you know, at night and, and I went on to eventually get a master's degree. But at one point, you know, as I got married, um, you know, the decisions in conversation with my wife, I probably could have stayed on active duty for forever and a day. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it was just that time and that environment, you know, uh, after 9-11. But I realized if I don't go out and use this degree, it's just going to be a piece of paper on the wall. Yep. And um, I wanted to go out there and I wanted to apply my degree. My degree was in mass communications with an emphasis on advertising. So I wanted to go out and I wanted to do advertising, marketing, communications. I wanted to apply an interest in an area that I had. 
And so for about the past 15 years, I've been doing, you know, uh, marketing communications at different levels and different roles at different places. For the last five of those years, I have been at the uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, that's the, the the university that I work at. And then within that university, I work for essentially the, the division school called University College. Okay. Fair enough. So the way to think about that is, you know, in any big university, any large university, there's the university itself. And then there in that university, there might be the school of business mm-hmm. or the school of or the you know college of arts and sciences or a school of fine arts. And so within any of that, there's these lower levels, just like, you know, in the military, there were divisions and wings and, you know, a different yeah, uh, right. ways that the, the military was kind of, uh, you know, aligned and 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 uh, and focused and different work that was done in different areas. Um, same thing within a university. There's, you know, divisions and schools and levels and centers and departments and, and, and you just have a specific role. And so where I'm at in university college, the focus is on continuing education, adult education, um, providing those individuals that that want to go either want to come back to college uh, for a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or just in pursuit of, uh, of a certificate or lifelong learning that they can come back and they can pursue that at, you know, at a pace, at a schedule, you know, a, 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 that they choose or that they want to focus in on in, in terms of what they want to learn. And so we, we offer that kind of flexibility. We offer that kind of adult learning environment, that flexibility for, for evenings, uh, online, of course, you know, obviously big for, for any school. Yeah. You know, but we have an online component as well, and and online was everywhere. Obviously, of course, after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of turned your passion for marketing and your degree and your education in marketing into a very good selling book that has won multiple awards. Which I I think I've said it before, but again, congratulations because it's just it seems like every time I I log into LinkedIn. And I see something you've posted, oh, won another award. And I'm like, man, he is just bagging up the awards, man. Kudos to you because it's. I think that's really, really cool. Thank you so much. It's very humbling, you know, in a lot of ways. So after I retired from the reserves, you know, one of the things I thought to I know I had always kind of wanted to write a book. Um, and after I, I, uh, retired from the reserves, I was like, well, it's either now or never. I had done a master's, you know, program and I'd done a master's thesis. Right. And so, you know, I have the, 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 the technical expertise and, and, and the knowledge to be able to do something, but it's like that time was a key factor, Yeah. you know, that, the, the, the time to be able to do that. And, and so I, I had this idea. It's really, it's really not so much an idea. It's, it's, a, it's an observation. Yeah, that's what it is. It's an observation. And this 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 real observation that really became a, a working theory that I kind of put out throughout the book is that the era of marketing has really seen this change. Mm-hmm. And you know, as marketers and communicators and 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 we see it in advertising, and, and you see even even see it outside of all of that is people talk about well, content, content, content. Content is king. The you should be doing content every single day. And really, my observation was that it's really not that that case anymore. And and so uh, you know, oh gosh, I am so sorry about that. No, you're fine. Of course, you have an alarm go off right in the middle of everything. <laughs> um, and and so 
the the title of my book, "The Death of Content as King," really is that kind of that premise of there has been this paradigm shift. Yeah. And what is that paradigm shifted towards? It's really about data. And if we look at you know the 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 dominant platforms right now in marketing communications and advertising, where all the money goes, where does the attention go? Where does the money go? Okay. And the, you know, the most dominant platforms, Google, Facebook, Amazon, these platforms don't really create content No, as, as their way of essentially grabbing, you know, um, uh, user attention in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and, and making their, you know, their piece really for them, it's the data. Yeah. The data is what they've used and the data algorithms, you know, they creating personalized experiences for your search, personalized experiences for your social feeds, um, personalized shopping experiences on Amazon, oh, down yeah. to personalized pricing. They get so much of my money. <laughs> they well and 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 it's not just them it's not just those dominant ones yeah. if you start pulling out of that you look at netflix you look at companies called fanatics and uh you know disney or walmart or a lot of these other companies they have made huge pivots and huge focuses and huge investments in their data driven operations mm-hmm. so how can we really as marketers you know uh advertisers or you know communicating professionals or or people trying to build um, services or platforms or organizations that are trying to attract consumers, you know, to pay a service or buy a product, how can we really say, well, it's going to be all about the content? Yeah, that's hard now. It's hard now. And so, you know, it took me, uh, I, it took me about a year to write the book. Um, and, uh, and I have over, you know, I think the biggest thing about it is not just John's opinion that this has happened. Mm-hmm. I took the time to do a ton of research oh, yeah. and I include all that research in the, in the book. I have over 200 cited sources. Oh yeah. Just a, um, a massive amount. Every page I was like, wow, wow. I was, I was totally impressed. It was, and I don't want to say this in a, in a, like a negative way, but it was almost like a textbook. It was just loaded I, with information. And then when I found out you were, you were at a university, I was like, oh, well this makes sense. Like he, this was a huge research project for him that he turned into a book on a great premise and a great idea. And I was like, wow, this is, this is heavy. Like I had to read through it like several times, flipping pages, going back. Like, did I understand that? Like there was so much to it, but it makes, it makes so much sense. Like what you're saying, because you know, Facebook used to be when it first came out was a social media site. You posted a picture, you posted a comment and then people replied or liked it. And that was kind of the premise of it. And now now it's it's automated timelines, it's targeted ads. So like every single person's experience on the platform, whether on the app or online, is totally different. It'll never be the same. It's almost like it never repeats itself, even for the individuals, let alone a group of people. And it's just it's it's exploded and how they've exploited data to, to do that is almost crazy because it's like I can talk like me and you could talk about like furniture right now, but I really need a new leather chair. And then when we get off this phone call, I go on Facebook. I'll have recommendations for leather chairs. It, it And it's, it doesn't have to always be kind of thought about as like a creepy way of, of how all that works. Sure. It's the algorithms are so intelligent now. Right. 
you know, that concept of AI yeah. really is that predictive machine learning element to be able to say, well, the reason why you're looking for that, you're like you're probably in a market for a couch is because they figured out, well, you live in a certain zip code, you likely have a certain size house or, yeah. you know, uh, you know, based on your demographics or based on your purchase history. I mean, there's all so much data that exists and that they're able to kind of correlate and say, well, the odds are he wants or is looking for or possibly shopping and considering X. Mm-hmm. You know, a good example of that, I mean, you can go and look at your Google, uh, you know, your Google ad profile. This is essentially a, a profile that Google has that makes they make available for every user of their platform. And you can look at your ad profile and you can kind of see what does Google know about you? Really? In terms of age ranges, education levels, um, you know, and uh, interests, you know, are you a Star Trek fan? Are you a Star Wars fan? Um, and, it, and it even gets more like, you know, have you connected to the platform on an Android device or have you connected on a platform on an iPhone device? It would even, uh, you know, on my screen, I'm able to kind of see what device what you know like what device do i have because it knows what device i've used to connect with it because your your phone has a device id Mm -hmm. and so it's able to tell from that that your cell phone is a certain amount of years old wow okay and what carrier you used you know so that all of that data can be combined and segmented and organized in such a way that you know, if they wanted to target me with, uh, you know, a, a, a Star Trek celebrity promoting their new flip phone that looks like a tricorder um, on the Verizon network that I'm on. And because my phone is eligible for an upgrade, they can offer in a special upgrade deal. They can have a message that is that customized because all of that data is available for me. And it's so incredible, too, because it's like. You know, it's just thinking about it and and thinking about how it's evolved because, you know, years ago when we were getting ads, we were getting ads for stuff that was tailored to us, but maybe at the wrong time. Like, you know, trying to sell flannels in uh, July. You know, I love Mm -hmm. flannel shirts, but not in July. But it seems like it's changed so much that I don't even have to look it up. I don't have to look it up. I don't even have to have a conversation with my wife about it. It's just like it knows me well enough to know, hey, come September, let's start showing Jeff ads on jeans and flannel shirts and boots. And it's like, wow, it's so crazy how data has like you like what you said, data is king now. Content, posting pictures and content and captions is not is not it anymore. Trying to stay caught up, you got to stay caught up with the data. And I think that really the the, the biggest point that I've made in the book is, you know, it would have been easy to actually say, da- you know, data is the new king of marketing. But one of the things that you, you start to realize is you can have all the data in the world. Mm-hmm. But if you don't organize it correctly, if you don't use it correctly, yeah. it's going to fail you. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? You could have, you know, a ton of data about your consumer. You know, let you know you could have a, a very complete, accurate database of ten thousand of your last customers. But if that, if the last piece of data that you have there is twelve months old, how reliable is it? Right. 
I think really what what it comes down to, what makes these platforms powerful today and, and, and they'll be powerful tomorrow and they'll be powerful for a very long time, is that users, us as the consumers, are coming back as users to these platforms and using them again and again and again. We're continuously providing our data to them because we're making a choice. Basically, we're vote we're we're voting with our voice, as I kind of say, mm-hmm. and and really what we're creating is not so much data as the new king, but really a data democracy. Because people can go and they can take their data, and they can, really kind of taking their interactions, their activity, their passive you know their passive attention, their active activity, and they can go to another platform. You know, you see that with yeah. with young adults right now and TikTok. Yep. You know, and and, and you know and you know, or, you know, people could start, you know, looking and using DuckDuckGo as a search engine or Walmart Plus because Walmart's just come out with that, you know, type of piece. We can go and we can go to other platforms and take our activities and take our pieces over there. And and that really makes us, the consumer, really the driver of a lot of, you know, uh, uh, of this uh, of this effort. And it forces the platforms to be better about how they, you know, uh, how they use the data that we give them mm-hmm. so that it, the, the product becomes better um, or a product or service becomes better. It forces the advertisers, the marketers and the advertisers that are using, you know, the the data they're getting and they're, and they're advertising on these platforms to be better at their jobs. Yeah, they've because gotten better the worst at thing it. You could, yeah, the worst thing you could do is, is, is you know, we always say in marketing, right message, uh, to the right person at the right time. You mess up on any one of those, and 99 times out of 100, you've lost that. You've lost that potential uh, customer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know what we can do now as marketers using data is to be able to deliver all of that right message, right time, you know, uh, right person. But also we can measure did it work, right. And 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 in in the more traditional marketing elements, the even and in the early days of, of of digital, you know, there that wasn't the tracking pieces, the monitoring of the pieces wasn't really as possible in the moment. So you could put a billboard campaign up, you could put a radio campaign out, you could put a um, a Super Bowl ad, you know, and and you put all this traditional media out there, and you don't know if that's driving the consumer. Or not to to purchase your product. Yeah. With digital ads, you can actually see the activity related to all of that, and that can make for much better, much smarter marketers. Which and it's it's crazy to think somebody could run the same Super Bowl ad today that they did 15 years ago when digital was first really breaking out. And the difference would be back then they essentially had to wait until sales figures came around to see if it worked. Now. They can log on by the end of the day and be like, oh, we had 5,000 clicks on that ad. Same commercial. Oh, same commercial. And you're seeing that that activity about how brands and, and, and agencies are adapting to this new reality in almost every facet. You know, you think about, you know, kind of even the Super Bowl ads, as you mentioned. Well, now Super Bowl ads are coming out days you know, before oh yeah, they're being launched on YouTube and they're being put out there to try to capture some early buzz, mm-hmm. you know, or the ad itself becomes a springboard to a website or a springboard to another piece. Then that has even more elements, you know, uh, to it. And what happens there is now 
if the consumer follows, you know, and, and, and follows that action, again, they may not be ready to buy something, but that puts them in what's called a remarketing funnel where it's, I went to go look at those pairs of that pair of shoes, uh, that pair of nice uh, boots that I wanted to buy. And now those boots are following me across the internet and now they're on sale because I didn't shop and I didn't buy them, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's a lot more that can be done um, and a lot more time and attention that can be, that can be given to the consumer uh, as a result of just all the changes that have, that have happened in marketing. Well, even, you know, like you said, like it went from, Hey, you just need to get in front of the consumer's face to now you're in front of the consumer's face. You have to get, you have to stay in front of their face until they execute. So like I, I declined upgrading something the other day. I can't remember what it was, but they immediately sent me a message. Would you change your mind if we offered you 50% off? And it was like, so that follow-up was instant. So mm-hmm. you could change a no into a yes real quick and change somebody's mind by just getting back. But they used that data and they needed that to kind of come back around, which was cool. I still didn't say yes to it because I just didn't want to, but it was the fact that they had the, bil- the ability to follow up. Like they weren't going to just let me walk around so easily. And, you know, to your point, it's just about getting back in front because you never know what it could springboard into. And, and you've seen so many different partnerships too, like, you know, with the Super Bowl, you know, everything the Super Bowl does, it's sponsored or brought to you in part by, or, you know, and so days before, you know, they're teasing, like everybody knows to look for the Budweiser commercial at the Super Bowl because it's always like one of the top ones. But even Budweiser three or four days early is saying, you know, sneak peek at the Super Bowl commercial. And they're legendary mm-hmm. Super Bowl commercials. You know, these are the ones that people know. Everybody knows Budweiser Super Bowl commercial. But now even they're doing it and they don't necessarily have to, but they're you almost have to get on the train or get left at the station. And that's, you know, I, I make it a point in the book. It's, do you want to be the last blockbuster in the country? <laughs> that's good. You know, and, and, and because that idea of getting on board with the data, if you look at the very early days of Netflix and here was this, you know, uh, essentially DVD, you know, mail and home service uh, that Blockbuster tried to buy, by the way. Oh. And then they backed down from buying it. That was a mistake. You know. Top 10 business mistakes probably ever. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they looked at, the, you know, the, what Netflix is able to do is say, okay, you know, we have this huge warehouse full of all these DVDs and all these different, you know, pieces. You know, obviously, of course, you as the as, as the watcher, the consumer, the viewer, as you sign up for that service, you, you're encouraged to put a few things in your queue and those things can start coming to you. But what happens after you get through the new releases? Yeah, you know, and, and this is the problem that that Blockbuster really never was able to capitalize on. Is I, you know, you walk through a video rental store, and they got the walls and walls of new releases, and hopefully they got the one you want in stock, um, so you can walk out with that. But what happens when you've seen all the new releases and you're in, you know, and you're waiting for something, you know, or you've seen the ones you wanted to see. And you're waiting for something else, but but there's all these hundreds of other movies mm-hmm. that they had in the store. And yeah, sure, they had the genres labeled, but then it was kind of up to you to go figure out, well, maybe there was this other movie that was released four or five years ago yeah. with the same actor or the same you know director that I might be interested in. And what Netflix was able to do was to take all of those different pieces of data 
like you know people that uh, watched or, or that like to have Kevin Spacey in a movie, people that you know like movies directed by David Finch, people that liked the old BBC House of Cards, mm-hmm. and they were able to correlate all of that data and be able to determine, well, you know what? We can develop the House of Cards show directed by David Flinch or produced by David Flinch and, and we're starring Kevin Spacey on House of Cards. And we can release that. And we know we're going to have so many people already on the platform that are going to want to put that show in their queue to watch. Mm-hmm. So every time you're rating something, when you know when it used to be the star system, now it's the thumbs up, thumbs down system. All of those different elements are being used to determine, well, what should I recommend to you next? Because what Netflix wants is for you to stay a Netflix subscriber month after month. Right. And so whether they're talking whether you're talking about new content that they develop or catalog content that they have, they've got to figure out a way, well, how can I recommend stuff to Jeff that Jeff wants to watch? And then how can I ref- reference stuff to Joe that lives across the street from Jeff? You know, and and so on and so on and make it because not everyone's going to have your taste in movies. Right. How can we curate a feed of movies that are unique to all of that? And they use data to be able to achieve that. It's a total Um, customized entertainment and shopping experience. Like your life is almost completely customized now. You know, from the minute you walk into a store, too. I mean, even stores are going digital and have digital things now. Um, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why the movie, video, rental stores, and even libraries have, or libraries and bookstores have died. You know, yeah, Barnes and Noble survived, but even they cut stores because, you know, people, people said, I can read my book on my iPad, my iPhone, my Kindle, my this and that because, and I can take a book with me everywhere and it doesn't take up any more space. So it just turned into mm-hmm. this massive explosion of data. What was it, what was it like for you telling people the idea of the book? Because when you, when you hear the death of content is king, people kind of go, what are you talking about? Content is all I absorb. How is it dead? What was it like explaining? Like, no, it's not that it's dead, dead. It's that the sh- there's been a shift, like you said. There's either, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a, that's a great question, by the way. Um, I think about it, some of the response and, it, and I think in, in the content marketing realm, there's just that silence. They don't want to recognize that because it's the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that and I respect it, but I almost want to say you need to read the book because I'm not basically saying there's n- that stop doing content altogether. I'm saying the you know the kind of the spray and pray aspect. The um, we're going to do this and we're going to get you the number one search result on you know on Google, uh, you know, and do, by doing all of this free content or or we're going to help make this particular campaign go viral. That's just not going to work anymore. And I think the reality is is the more you know uh, professional brands and professional agencies and and marketing professionals that have been doing this at such a high level, they get it. They understand it. Mm-hmm. I get I, I get that kind of response more from them after they read the book. Um, and, and that's the biggest thing I try to encourage is for people to read it. 
because there's a lot that you can pull out of this to help you understand what's happening with your audiences or what's happening with your marketing campaigns or what's not happening with your marketing campaigns and ways to apply new techniques. It's not just saying what what was used to be done over there doesn't work anymore. Good luck. <laughs> it was, this has changed. Yeah. Here's the evidence and here's how it's changing. But if you follow, you know, certain data driven types of uh, practices and and thought processes and, and new ways of approaching things, this is how you can adapt and thrive in this new, more data driven, you know, type of environment. And I think the power of recommendation is, of course, always going to be, you know, a, a huge part of all of that. And I, I think that's been more than anything else. But I understand on the content marketing side with, with more content marketing professionals, there's a tough time with what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. But they, but many of them are very respectful for the idea that, well, I'm going to give it a chance. And then here's the things that I really like. But I've, I've rarely met the person who's like, oh, man, now you're 100% wrong. And then here's the 10 reasons why you're 100% wrong. I've not had to experience that. Uh, I don't mind that. I'd rather have the conversation. Sure. You know, um, you know, agree to disagree. That's fine. You know, and it's going to go from there. Well, and you still have to have the content. So to your point, yeah. it's not that it's died. It's that the data has become even so more relevant and more important for continued growth with, with content. Because content is kind of one-dimensional. You know, it's a visual thing. It's just, it's appeasing mm-hmm. to the eyes or the ears. And that's kind of, that's kind of its purpose, you know? Um, but then what's the data behind it? Because I can post something on my Instagram and I can get 150 likes. But then tomorrow morning I post something at the same time, but different. It's a different subject or whatever it may be, different graphic. And it gets 15 likes. And, mm-hmm. but it might get more views. So like it might get, 7,000 views, but only 15 likes. Cause so it's being seen. It's not being liked. Whereas, you know, yesterday, you know, I had 5,000 views, but I had 150 likes. So it's not that the content was bad is that it didn't appeal to people right then, right. You know, right now, like you said earlier, you have to hit all three of those right place, right time. You know, you have to nail it. So it's not that content has died. It's that it's even more so, almost kind of like walking on eggshells, you know, um, it's tough. It, it It's tough. If, if when we think about all this stuff, we basically have to play the algorithm. Yes. And if you're playing the algorithms game, you're never going to win. Oh yeah. You know, because you don't know because you don't work at Facebook and you don't work at Google and you don't work at Amazon. What are the core ingredients to their algorithm or the core pieces? You know, and, and and so you don't know those things and they can make tweaks to the algorithm, tweaks they announce, changes they announce, things they don't announce, tests or experiments that they do. And and then all of a sudden the strategy that worked for you in the summer of, you know, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the, the fall of 2019 no longer work in the summer of 2020 mm-hmm. because so many things have changed or so many aspects have changed. And that's even taking out of, you know, uh, out of account of it, the pandemic and how, you know, uh, consumer activity changed uh, post pandemic. Yep. You know, but there's that, there's that element of there's, 
there's so many secrets there that if you're trying to play that game, you're going to lose versus if you understand who your audience is because you're looking at data analytics, date, you know, data segmentation, data pieces that you might have in a CRM or, you know, however you have your data and you're looking at that data and you're understanding, you know, this is the type of content that my consumer, my audience is going to react to. And then you're able to adjust your message to be more personalized, dynamically personalized is one of the, one of the core concepts I have in the book is of how to take your content and organ and dynamically uh, change it based on a few different types of criteria, again, based on the data, because, you know, the Super Bowl is one of those national events. We, we mentioned the Super Bowl a few different times. It's one of those national events that's, you know, almost global in a lot of ways, but national mm-hmm. and a lot of people are watching it from all different parts. And it's not just the two teams that are playing. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that and it's only really those audiences, the people that like those two teams. That one's a national type of piece, you know, but you look at what, you know, a company like Fanatics is able to do in the sports apparel area where they're able to say, OK, all right, it might be um, the, the the St. Louis Rams. You know, or not? I'm sorry. St. Louis Rams no longer in the St. Louis Rams. That's how <laughs> bad my that's how bad my football references are. Um, and I used to be a bigger football fan, but it you know it it might be the the Patriots versus you know whoever. Okay, uh, and uh, do they still play Miami? I think the Patriots still play Miami. Maybe they're in the, still in the same contrast. Again, yeah. this is how bad my sports references <laughs> are these days. Um, and so you have those two audiences. Now, let's say somewhere in the course of the game, the first string quarterback on one of the on the on the Patriots side gets injured. And he's out of the game. And now you got this second string quarterback that no one's ever really heard of before. And he goes and he scores seven touchdowns in that game. You're like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. Who's ever heard of this guy? Mm-hmm. I want to and, and my son was watching the game. My son thought it was a, this great game. I want to go down and I want to go buy the jersey. But if you go to a sports apparel store, you're not going to find the second string quarterback, no. you know, for the for the Patriots. No, that day. No, you're not. But what Fanatics is able to do is Fanatics is able to see the signals because they're, you know, they're observing the game. Mm-hmm. They're able to see what's happening in the game. They're watching it and they're able to have a mock up jersey created yep. of that player for that team. And send that out to everyone who is a fan of that team that they have email list wise or text message wise mm-hmm. and put and create a prominent place on, you know, on the Fanatics website, but also Fanatics has licensed with all the different sports teams, you know, on, on the sports website so that are right, awesome. That's great. That's amazing. Now I can look at my email and I can see that that wonderful player just got those seven touchdowns. And now I can go buy the jersey. There's no friction. I don't got to go anywhere. Yeah. I don't got to go look for it. It's just been created. Yeah, they're selling the product before they even set. have it. I mean, exactly. I mean, the 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 the, the Patriots could have lost the game, but the hero mm-hmm. quarterback, the company can still sell the jerseys for. Which is crazy because yep. years ago, if your team lost, like no, you didn't go out and go, oh well, you know, we lost the Super Bowl. I'm going to go buy a jersey. Not a lot of people did that. People were like, you know what? I'm going to go drink my face off, or I'm not. I don't want to talk about sports for the next two weeks because my team lost the Super Bowl. Now, if one player, like you said, has a really good game, win or lose, you can still sell the hero, 
and they're selling a mm-hmm. product they don't even have yet, which on the business yeah. side, you know, being a business major to me, you know, that's a huge return on investment. I can make one mock Jersey, take a handful of professional photos of it, digitize it, put it online in emails, text messages, everything like you said, it costs me pennies on the dollar to do that. And then the Jersey sales coming in, the first Jersey probably immediately takes care of it. If not within a handful of jerseys, I mean, we're talking less than a dozen. I bet covers the cost of doing what you just did. And then everything after that is just massive amounts of profit, even for the losing football team. Exactly. And, and they've never had to do a whole separate ad campaign around that winning athlete. Right. Because they already had the, they already had the audience. They knew who the audience was. They knew what the audience liked. They were able to customize a dynamic product for them and send that content out because it was personalized, because it was localized, um, because people were familiar with it, and be able to push that out instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's not just the Netflixes, you know, of the worlds or the or the you know major sports bureau companies. I mean, I think I think I'm seeing you know more data driven types of stuff in other ways and even in physical locations. You know, I, I, I use an example in the book and I still have this experience. Every time I walk into Lowe's now and I'm looking through Lowe's and, you know, there are times where I'm trying to find a product on the shelf and I'm trying to, you know, I Google, you know, Lowe's and then I look for that particular product, you know, what aisle is this on? What shelf is this on? And, and, and Lowe's website will tell you if it's in stock in this store and this is the location of all of this. I'll go home that afternoon and I'll get an email from Lowe's saying, hey, are you still interested in that product category? Mm-hmm. We saw that you were searching for it. Are you still interested in it? Mm-hmm. Do you want to go out and buy it? Yeah. You know, and and they're basically capitalizing on the fact that here they had a seller, they had a buyer, they really had a, they had a buyer in the store, they had a buyer in the store who was looking for, you know, a particular product, a particular product category. Um, they're not far enough yet to know in terms of the data connection mm-hmm. between retail and and digital of whether or not I bought it while I was in the store, but they can certainly ask me the question just in case. You know, yeah. hey, did you buy this or do you like are you still looking for things in this category? And and you know, again, that can definitely be another way to pick up a sale. Because that email doesn't really cost them a whole lot. No. And there's times that they've been able to do that that it's not always about I'm logged in. Yeah. I'm logged into Lowe's website. It's just I've got to the Lowe's website through Google and and Lowe's made the connection between my device ID, my search history, my purchase history, my email address, because I use the military discount uh, through Lowe's. Yep. You know, so they have my mil- they have my email address, they have my phone number. You know, they're able to kind of push, you know, put all of these pieces together, put the puzzle together, and provide me more personalized, dynamic types of uh, communications based on my activity. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and sometimes that can be creepy to some people. Sometimes it's not. You know, I tell that story to some people and they're like, oh, my God, I would never want that to happen to me. I don't want them to know what I'm doing in, in this category or that. It's like, well, they already know, already know. It's whether or not they that's whether they yeah. they've made you aware of it or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but it's but I think, you know, 
we've we've gotten spoiled sometimes as consumers how much this stuff is is personalized yeah um and but then there's this other side of the equation that's privacy and my privacy is different my privacy boundary is different from your privacy boundary probably sure as much as different from our significant others or or others and and um and and different regions and different areas and different backgrounds everyone has a different con uh, conception of what that is there's now legal conceptions of what privacy is um but i think that there's that like do we really want to go back to the kind of the 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 less uh, uh data driven eras of marketing oh, yeah. where the ads weren't as personalized the ads weren't as intuitive the ads weren't you know as as well delivered and i don't think any of us want to really go back to that because i think once you start experiencing it studies have already shown that people are like no i prefer the more personalized approach well and and companies on the business side stayed caught up with this concept and they 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 realize there's another part of the convenience factor to this so as as convenient as it is to see ads and text messages and emails and all that stuff about products you're interested in it doesn't do much unless you can buy it. And some people will still, like Amazon seemed to do it, one-click buying. Once you had all your information and stuff on Amazon's website, you could buy something in one click. Click, boom, it was done. You know, you didn't have to think about it. So it eliminated the thinking twice about your purchase. Do I need to buy this? Do I really want it? Is it nice to have? Is it necessary? But all that went out the window. If they could show it to you again and you could do a one-click purchase, verify your information and boom, it was done. They were capturing sales like a whole nother. They played on that convenience factor and said, if we're going to make it convenient for them to see it, we have to make it convenient for them to buy it. Or we're, we're, we have a 50-50 shot of closing a sale. Well, now... You know, like you said, you go into Lowe's, you shop, you look around for stuff. You don't necessarily buy anything. You go home, you you go home to an email from Lowe's saying, Do you, are you sure you wanted to skip that lawnmower? Or and you order your new lamp today and we'll ship it to your home for free. No shipping, you know, and you can go, yeah, well, you know what? Let's do it. Click, boom, it'll be here in three days. I think the the, the biggest plus of data that the, the biggest aspect of data that data has, has been able to provide um, and that these platforms have taken advantage of, you know, over the years is creating, is, is lowering the barrier, creating frictionless experiences. Yes. In terms of your search results, in terms of how your social feed works, I don't going to have to, I don't have to look through my social feed and look through 15 posts from 15 people that I could care less to get to the four or five pieces of content that I'm, more or less guaranteed to engage with the same thing with Amazon. I don't want to go and it's the winter time and I'm looking at, you know, pictures of lawnmowers. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about lawn care at this point. My lawn's dead. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it that, that frictionless experience and, and they, and they take it to a much higher level is, you know, again, the problem with the, the online stores used to be, well, I have to wait for it to get here. Yeah. And now Amazon and Walmart and all of them, same day, next day, two day, all free. Yeah, you know that's where they're. That's that's the world that we're in now. It's so frictionless. It's it's like, well, you know, I'm in the Barnes and Noble. I might as well buy the book. But then there's that other part of that that same brain that you've almost you know that they've kind of trained you in some ways. I almost want to say not you know not that they focused on that kind of training. It's like, well, let me check what this price of this is on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you're you're hundred percent right correct. Here. 
I could buy this book right here. Yeah. Or I could, you know, look at it and and I could know it could almost be in my uh, at my house the next day. Yep. You know, or within a few days. Well, but it's you know, changed and, and power in that. It's changed our thought on waiting, though. Like normally, mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I need it. I'm going to go buy it at the store now. I'll spend the 30 minutes running downtown and doing it. Now I'm like, well, I'll just put it off till tomorrow because it'll be here. I'm, tomorrow. A, pri- I'm a Prime member. I, yeah. I'm just going to put it on my cart and it'll be here. You know, it's uh, we're Walmart Plus members, and it's like we'll have that delivered to us. You know, the next day, or you know, schedule our delivery time for our various different pieces, and then then because they have all of this data about our activity. They're able to say, okay, well, we notice you've, you know, you've, you've uh, selected a grocery delivery slot for next Friday. You know, here are 15 items that you've been adding to your cart last time. Do you want to add all 15 of these items to your cart the next time? Yeah. You know, yep. making that repeat purchase behavior. Amazon's got subscribe and save. Amazon's got their grocery pieces. So all, you know, smart retailers have figured out this way of essentially saying, you know, how can, you know, we've got these membership pieces, but also how can we almost create subscription style businesses within all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, that that's it's next level. It is. You know, and we're all experiencing it, but it's it's, it's next level pieces for for uh, use of data. Yeah. And I and I think that, you know, whether we're talking you as the individual the, the, you know, the author, the podcaster, the, all the different types of pieces, um, you running a business, you know, you say, well, I'm not Google, I'm not Facebook and I'm not these. Well, that's true. You don't have all of these resources or all of these people, but the data is still out there. Yep. You can still ask your, 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 uh, your audience for their information. You want to give them something in return or promise something in return or sell them something in relation, but you can still ask and get information from them. And you can still use that information to, to have a better understanding of who your audience is and then to be able to provide, um, you know, better, whether we're talking better content, we're talking, you know, more personalized content because of the data, or we're talking a better, more personalized product as a result of the data, you can still do that as an organization of one or an organization of a hundred or, 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 or tens of thousands, you know, um, it, you know, and I think we see that all the time with startups and, and those types of companies is that the, they've become from the very beginning, more data driven growth hacking techniques. And, and, and that really took off in marketing and has been taking off in uh, marketing for uh, several years, just focusing on growth, but it's really focusing on taking a combination of, of the product and the data and, and, and the awareness of the audience and, and building the best types of uh, campaigns and efforts and tactics and strategies to help grow their businesses. It can be done at any level. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee that even as an author myself, you know, when I first published my book, you know, there was, yes, I had my email list, but that was only going to sell a certain amount of copies. Mm-hmm. I knew from the very beginning that in order for my book to be successful, it has to reach new audiences. But it can't just be any audience. It needs to be essentially the audience that I know is going to be the ones that are that are going to want to buy the book or want to give the book a go. And and then I'm, you know, I'm able to kind of then tailor who am I reaching out to who, uh, you know, do I want to talk to, um, you know, whose calendar do I want to get on to try to, you know, pitch the idea of let me do a workshop or let me do this or that, um, you know, to help better that piece, even so far as, you know, 
you talked about the you know at the beginning the awards that my book has won and i've been very blessed to to win several awards for my book in marketing categories and social media categories etc um i used a service called um award pro that you know essentially is there for authors to be able to say well they you know, you put your book information um but sorry book award pro is is i is i think is the full name of the service and uh and i and i put the information in about my book and i you know it's like a subscription fee uh and then they go out and they found here are the different book contests that have categories where your book can enter and so i was using data you know and 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 they're using data and, and those types of pieces to determine well there are the here are the different book categories and places where i can go put in uh into these competitions mm. and submit my book for these competitions so there's data on the front end of all of that but i also know that in order to get in front of people that don't know me from adam mm-hmm. i have to have that kind of that third party validation that other piece of somebody else is saying that my book is good and not just my book reviews and the awards are a way to do that and i went so far as after every single one of those linkedin posts and those twitter posts and those face i I would post those on my facebook as well after every single one of those posts i then go into the amazon sales data page and i could track all the charts in relationship to how many essentially, you know, where all the spikes were and how many copies were sold or, you know, or, or, or infer in some ways with sales data rank, how many copies were sold, mm. you know, but I'm, then I'm able to see, well, what kind of spikes do I have? And that third party validation then helped the algorithm be able to, you know, people like that kind of content. They were like, oh, this is great. Awesome. Congratulations, John. I got in front of more people as a result of all of that. And on average, each of those awards created, you know, a, you know, seven hundred percent or higher spike in my sales data for those two weeks. Wow. You know, so I'm able to know. It's like, okay, I got my first award. Then I watch the 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 long tail of the data afterwards, and I'm like, all right, well, I it's definitely going to be worth the expense to continue to submit for more awards because it has this, you know, it has this other effect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so even as the individual marketer, I know this is, this is what I'm able to do, uh, you know, with data and adjust how the tactics and the strategies that I have in relationship to that. So how many uh, awards have you won so far? So I, in total I've won, uh, gosh, I, I have to actually count. I've won about six awards um i five of those winning in marketing categories or social media categories um i was a finalist in the business and sales and finance category for the independent author network book of the year but i've you know the only time i almost basically have not won one of these is when the book category is not marketing mm-hmm. for every marketing category cleaned house or social media category it, it's one and you know and i you know some of the ones that i'm really proud of like the new york city big book award yeah for 2021 huge proud hugely proud of that the the uh annual national indie excellence award the international impact book award 
just huge competitions. And you can see how many books are, you know, there's the runner up sometimes there's all, you know, you, you can just see the, the plethora of books that are being submitted to all of this and just the caliber of the judges or the caliber of the competition that you're up against. Um, and so I'm very proud of, of, of the response to the book, both from people in the profession of marketing communications that are reading it and going, God, this should be a textbook. Yeah. You know, you said that at the beginning, this should be a textbook. Yep. Um, it's funny you said that because the, one of the Amazon reviews that I just got, uh, earlier in the week was that that was the first thing that they, they said was this should be a textbook in marketing classes. Um, you know, so I have that response from people in the profession and I'm, I'm like, I'm great. This, this is reaching the audience that I wanted to reach and it's getting the response that I wanted to have. But then there's also this level of recognition that it's getting at kind of that, that, that national literary world yeah. of being able to say, you know, these are great books, et cetera. Well, it's no longer word of mouth. It's no longer being on the top shelf at the bookstore or being on that front display when you walk in. It's about the algorithms, the reviews, and there's multiple sites for reviews now. It's no longer just Amazon. Mm -hmm. There's Goodreads. There's, you know, Book Hub and all, all these different places you can go. I mean, every place has a review on it, whether you buy it from them or not. You could go leave a review everywhere if you wanted to as a consumer. But, um, but Amazon's king. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to beat that. I mean, but um, what was it like for you as a marketer, marketing a marketing book? Um, You know, I've spent, you know, 15 years in marketing, and this is the first time I've ever had a product that's mine. And I think that brings a new level of self-awareness mm -hmm. because it's it's really at the end of the day I'm marketing my book, but I'm really marketing myself. And it's a, and it's, and it's a large essentially element of your personal brand um, and your professional reputation. Uh, you know, that, that there, there's a lot of new there, you know, where you have to, you know, in some ways learn what's going to work for yourself and what's not going to work for yourself. I can't post, you know, uh, to LinkedIn or Twitter, you know, uh, quotes from the book or pieces from the book every single day. The algorithms themselves are going to essentially wash that out. Sure. But, you know, I, but even my own audiences that I built up, they're not going to want to see that every single day, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's understanding kind of as a marketer, whether we're talking, it's my own product or, you know, uh, if it was, you know, talking about the work that I do, you know, professionally, it's, well, what's going to work? you know, for the audience. And then at what point does it become spam or what point does it just become noise or something that they ignore? But what are the things that I'm going to have to do that are going to have the best impact for book sales today? Right. How can it relate back? How can it relate back? But what's going to have the biggest impact? Because, you know, budgets are finite because it's yours. It's your own money mm -hmm. that you want to put behind this. Okay. Um, what's going to be the best use for my dollars? What's going to provide me the best return on investment for that? Which is again, all marketing decisions that we, that we make, you become your own worst kind of boss in some ways, because you're always kind of thinking to yourself, God, is my website good enough? Yeah. There's a lot of risk. Um, you know, is, does this look, does the book cover look professional? Does this look professional? Um, you know, is this the best use for, you know, this hundred dollars or this, you know, uh, you know, 
whatever the investment is, even investments of time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I had somebody who reached out to me, you know, I've had some interest in my book from Canada and I've, you know, had a few interactions with individuals from Canada, Canada, but then I had this interaction or this request from, um, the Philippines. And I was like, I just don't, I, I honestly, I like, I had to make some assessments and look at some other pieces of data. I'm like, I just don't feel like that, that there's an audience over there that I'm going to be able to really, yes, you, you know, that person had a podcast too, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, you, you have this, but I don't really feel like there's going to be the best fit from what I, what I'm talking about or what I'm doing. My audience, I don't feel like is there. And so you have to make again, those kinds of decisions as the author, also as the marketer, uh, what's going to be the best use of my time? Because I still have, you know, a full-time job. Yeah. You know, I still make room, you know, I still have to do the work um, and do all this stuff because we don't make money off of these books. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, a, um, it's a definitely a, uh, one of those things where, you know, and that's something how I've kind of been approaching it is I'm not selling the book. I'm selling myself. Mm-hmm. I'm selling what all comes with me and I'm selling, um, you know, my lifestyle, you're almost selling your lifestyle. Like, you know, what are you about? What are you interested yep. in? You have to sell that because yeah, a book doesn't make a ton of money, but you know, if you look at guys like, um, I use Jack Carr a lot. He's a fiction writer. Uh, Jack Carr sells books. Jack Carr doesn't just sell books. He, you know, he has major gun um, manufacturers that support him. He has coffee companies, um, clothing. I mean, he had, today he posted online. He has his own little action figure. You know, he's mm-hmm. making residual money off of the book. The book yeah. is something that everybody looks forward to him releasing every year. And I love his books, but it's one time. One time a year, he drops a book. All the other parts of the year, he works on selling, you know, the trade paperback and the ebook. And then, you know, he has a coffee thing and he has all this other stuff that he's also promoting throughout the year, but he's still promoting himself as a part of it. So when he doesn't have to do, you know, book advertising six months prior because he's been advertising who he is all year long. So when it comes time for the book release, he's overly prepared, it seems like. There's the I think that the the key here is there's with that and 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 the authors that uh, I follow and I and I and I see how they do those stuff. That there's the product, there's the author of course, but then there's the product and then there's the platform. Mm-hmm. You know, Ryan Holiday, one of the authors that I you know uh, admire and I read a lot of his stuff. You know, he put out a book on called The Perennial Seller, and it's essentially a book on creating. Um, and marketing, uh, you know, creative works, whether we're talking, you know, and he's a multiple best-selling author, yeah. New York times, multiple best-selling author, um, a, a stoic is stoic philosophy is kind of his bread and butter. And that's his main area, but he's, his, some of his first book and some of, uh, some of the other books that he's done along the way have been about, you know, uh, growth hacking He had a book on growth hacking, he had a, uh, a book like, uh, on, Trust me, uh, I'm lying. You know, like he's had all of these different types of books on different subjects as well as a stoic book. Well, he also runs, you know, the Daily Stoic website, yeah. which has a store, um, you know, he has Daily Stoic podcast. You know, there's, you know, different products, you know, mem- stoic related products in his store, you know, and but also, again, he's building the platform 
that brings in audiences because he's got, you know, he puts out a daily email on stoic philosophy and he's been doing that for multiple years. You know, that generates interest that builds that platform that brings in an audience that generates interest in the activities and the other products and services that, that, that he offers. Mm-hmm. And that allows him to, you know, basically maintain not just, you're not just living book to book. Yeah. Or not just relying on, well, I hope this book sells because the last book, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, you're only as good as your most recent one. In his world, he's built more of a platform. The Tim Ferrises of the world, the four-hour work weeks, you know, you know the, that kind of the different pieces of their platforms. And I think those are that's that's the the generation of author that is the most successful building, you know, the brand for themselves, but more building that building that author platform for themselves, and they've become masters at it, mm-hmm. at it in a lot of ways. You see it in some points in fiction, but I but I more gravitate towards the nonfiction people sure um struck by i read a lot of historical biographies and i was struck by a i read a, a whole series of winston churchill biographies and i was struck by one of the comments that you know in between you know when he was running for uh, when he was uh in the uh parliament you know his biggest source of income wasn't him being essentially being uh, uh, in, in, in the parliament. This was before the war, before he was a prime minister in, in much you know, uh, of the beginning parts of his life. He was a writer. You know, he wrote several you know, dozens of books mm-hmm. and articles and was paid to give speeches, et cetera. But his family basically was like, you know, they were always kind of worried. It's like, you know, yes, he had a name even before World War II. Yes, he had a name, but it was very much like, well, we hope this next book sells, because this was really that era. Obviously, again, the you know the early nineteen uh, twenties and or the nineteen twenties and you know nineteen ten, etc. They didn't have email. That it really wasn't the same kind of like, well, let me send this to everyone who has bought the previous book. You know, yeah. they have to be looking for they have he has always has to be, you know, so there was always that worry on their levels in the early author stages and stuff like that. Now, as authors, we can ask for an email address, you know, when they if they want to buy a copy from us, et cetera. Um, and you see more of the business writers, um, you know, and people writing in, in the nonfiction categories and stuff like that. They'll basically operate the entire. Yes, the book might be on Amazon. But they want it as best they can operate the entire element of the business through their own websites, through their own platforms, through their own things, because they're essentially, you know, helping build that database of the next, uh, you know, for the for the next book and the next book after that, mm-hmm. um, because that's, you know, you know, that that's really the 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 the, the larger piece of all of that is being able to build that audience. And I think that applies whether we're talking about books. We're talking about shoes or we're talking about widgets or gadgets or whatever the case may be, oh, yeah. you know, building those, uh, building that core audience and creating that audience and being able to grow all of that helps make the next thing you create or the next service that you offer or the next sale that you have, whatever the next location that you open, it always makes that a heck of a lot easier. Um, you know, because you now know where an audience is or what you can tap into in relation to, to all that. So speaking of growth and what's next, um, the book is a, like a year old now. Um, yes. Won multiple awards. Um, what's next? 
All right, is there we're gonna get a death of content of King Part Two? Uh, what's what's John got on the horizon? It's a great question, um, and I don't have all the answers for you right now. <laughs> um, but I've been thinking. Well, I, again, it's it's. I, I thought a lot on this subject, and I've been thinking a lot on this subject, probably to, you know, uh, overthinking it in some ways. Because the death of content is king. The concept, and the idea, the theory, the observation, the research, and all those things, you know, that came to me, you know, relatively quickly. But obviously, the whole process of doing all of it, you know, you know, writing a book is 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 a is a war. Yeah. against you and yourself yes um and and it's trench warfare it's inches and miles and words and word counts and um you know when i think about well, what do i want to do next or what's the topics that interest me you know one of the biggest ones i have right now out there is the metaverse you know this concept of the metaverse um and you know facebook just renamed themselves the facebook company just renamed themselves into meta mm-hmm. You know, and 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 the metaverse, the concept of the metaverse is being mentioned and and dropped all throughout there. Now, what interests me about that? I think the biggest thing that interests me about that is, you know, if you had told me 20 years ago that I was going to be able to get uh, on my cell phone the internet, video games. Um, and, and, and all of these different types of services and apps. And I was going to be able to order phone and order food, not by talking with somebody over the phone, <laughs> yeah, but through a specialized application on the phone. I was like, yeah, I don't see that. I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. You know, you think back to when perhaps you were first introduced to the internet and how the internet worked and and kind of trying to grasp and understand the internet before the internet really kind of exploded with America online and prodigy and all those, you know, internet service providers, et cetera. But really those first introductions to the internet, the first introductions to personal computers, I feel like you're at the age where there was a moment in your life that you were, you know, like you had lived a life before Mm -hmm. and then you were introduced to, uh, to a personal computer. You lived a life before then you're introduced to the internet and then you're introduced to uh, smartphones. There's, there's going to become this time where you're going to be introduced to what, what the metaverse is. And I wonder if for people of our generation or, or older, or, you know, it's still even, you know, perhaps some younger generations. Well, what is the metaverse and why should I care? Mm-hmm. And that, that interests me because again, why should I care about doing, you know, uh, having the inter- the entire internet in my pocket? Yeah. Why should I care? And some people will get it and some people understand it and they're the ones pushing, you know, towards that, the blockchain, the NFTs, crypto, you oh, know, yeah. AR glasses, all these kinds of things that we just hit that all those pieces out there. But I would say, there's 10% of people that understand anything about it. And there's 1% of people that are making it happen or making something new there in, in relationship to that. But then there's the rest of us. And I <laughs> yeah. really am interested in the concept of helping the rest of us understand what the metaverse is. Okay. What format that takes or what that looks like. I'm not a hundred percent sure yet. You know, is it a newsletter? Is it a, I, you know, is it a podcast? You know, is it a, is it uh, an ebook? You know, wh- what is it? 
but it's it's been an area that I've been talking with with a few colleagues um, and others where I just start we start talking about the metaverse. And again, there's people who are really into it mm -hmm. and they really want to start pulling apart different aspects of it and wanting to just chat me up and, you know, until my 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 eyes bug out of my head. But then there's also the people who are like, man, I could care two cents about this. Yeah, but we used to say that the same thing about all those other yeah. pivots and, 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 and technological leaps. We say those same thing. Why should I care about that? Exactly. Um, you know, I remember when Facebook first came around and Facebook was all about, you know, college, you know, college students. Yep. You know, I was like, well, I was not in college. I was in the college of the military at the time. You know, it's like, <laughs> this wasn't for me. Nope. <laughs> I'm not looking for a date. I'm married, you know, whatever the case may be. It's like, this isn't for me. And, you know, but then now can you think of how you're going to interact with friends, colleagues, family, et cetera, that doesn't exist without Facebook in some ways? Yeah. Um, especially if they're, if you, everybody's living in different parts of the country and we don't call our mothers as much as we like to pretend we call our mothers, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so now we can't think of that world with prior to that, but that's what things were. And I think that that's part of what might be coming with them, with the metaverse. Now I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. They could be wrong as well, that it might not be as prevalent or as pivotal, um, as they would like it to be, but. You know, I think that, you know, it, it takes that kind of understanding to help somebody understand, well, what should this look like and what does it look like? Um, and, and I think it takes someone like myself who I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I want to be the person that, that does this and I have an interest in this because, again, I don't have a vest. I'm not selling, you know, metaverse apps. I'm not selling metaverse, you know, uh, products or services or those kinds of other pieces. Um, I'm not anti a company or anti this or anti that. That's like, well, no, they're not the ones doing it right. And these are the ones over there. I don't have an NFT for sale. I don't have any of that kind of, you know, I don't care about what's up or down in the crypto world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not invested in that way. I'm curious. Yeah. And I think the best books and concepts in those pieces come out of a curiosity. It's not that I want to write a book because I want to become famous. You know, or I want to write a book because I want to make money or those those are the, all the wrong reasons or because I want to get sales leads. That's all, all the wrong reasons to write a book. Mm -hmm. The right reason to write a book is because you're very curious about something. And not only do you feel like you have something to say, but you feel like what you say has a there's a there's a validness. There's value. Value, you know, is, is, is key to all of that. And I think that's a, a good reason to write a book and a mm -hmm. good reason to explore a topic. And I find value in this topic right now. That's a very interesting, uh, interesting topic. And I'll, I look forward to potentially hearing from you about it. Um, if you haven't picked up John's book, the death of content as King, uh, you should, um, even if you're not interested in marketing, it's just a really cool, almost kind of peek behind the curtain as to how that works. Um, and it's very interesting. I learned a ton um, as a business major. I, I knew some stuff already because you have to understand marketing and the consumers and stuff like that. But to hear it from a marketing expert really 
drilled down all the way. It's very interesting. Um, I mentioned that it's like a textbook and it's not in a derogatory way. It's that finite of details and that amount of information. It's fantastic. You absolutely have to go pick it up. Uh, John, it was a pleasure having you on today. I want to be respectful of your time. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, but uh, this was great, man. Thank you so much. Jeff, this was like talking to a friend in the room. <laughs> thank you. This was a great conversation to have. Um, thank you so much for, for having me on and, and sharing you know my book with your audience. Um, and I, I look forward to seeing more from you and, and, and hearing more from you. And you know, obviously, of course, the moment I have something new to share, you're going to be, besides myself, you're going to be the next person to know. Well, please. Yeah, that'd be great. You're welcome back anytime. And again, I thank you so much for coming on. 